6640. Your future lies in 6640. 66 books by 40 authors, and yet we now discover it's an integrated message system from outside our time domain. Welcome to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher is Chuck Missler, connecting the Bible to your life and the world around you. In today's study, Chuck completes his conclusion on the book of James. Now, the establishment of the, what we know as the Christian church, they attribute to a, as a political invention by an intruder that came later by the name of Paul. And that Paul and James were adversaries. And that's the position they try to take and they try to defend. The story continues that these early Christians, the, the, the real Christians, not the Pauline people, but these are, they are said to have buried their most precious scrolls and their treasures beneath Herod's temple before, now this is, yeah, before uh, they and the city was destroyed by the Romans in 70 AD. And the hidden teachings of the real gospel by James and, and Jesus were driven underground. And following the destruction of the Jerusalem church and the slaughter of the Jewish nation in 70 AD, a few of the surviving priests from the smoldering city of Jerusalem headed to Europe to await the moment of the Lord's return prophesied in the Gospel of John. Now, precisely 1,000 years later, their bloodline of those original priests, their descendants, re-entered the holy city in Jerusalem to claim their ancient heritage and to form a new order of priests uh, known as uh, the priests of the temple, known as the mysterious Knights Templar. Now, one of the things you'll quickly discover if you start doing research here, there is a lot of mysteries that surround the Knights Templar. They're presented in Britannica and those kind of sources as a group of knights that were organized to protect pilgrims during the Crusades and so forth. That's the press releases. <laughs> there, when you really get behind this, there are, there are a lot of strange mysteries about the Knights Templar, and I won't go through all that here. But the idea was lost to the world for a thousand years, the records that they, uh, it is claimed, that they uh, were clandestinely unearthed and interpreted by the infamous order of the Knights Templar who adopted the ancient teachings and rituals as their own. These warrior monks ostensibly conducted a nine-year-long excavation under the temple following the First Crusade. There is reason to believe that they did discover a great deal. In fact, there are many scholars that believe they found the temple treasures and uh, that uh, hidden below the tumbled ruins. There even they divide, there's a lot of other things that start here too. The tarot cards were a, uh, a cryptic, they were assigned cryptic meanings to protect their secret cult. The Knights Templar were a secret order. And that's what partly what got them into a lot of trouble. Now, their strange history then endures for about two centuries, about 200 years. When they were finally, they were primarily strong in France. They were incredibly wealthy. That's what leads to the inference that they probably did bring treasure out of their, out of their uh, involvements in Jerusalem. And uh, Philippe IV of France coveted their wealth. They were very, very powerful, but he arranged sealed orders to be opened on a certain day, almost like a Gestapo thing, and on October 13th of the year 1307 in France, all the Knights Templars 
were arrested and their homes and lands confiscated by the crown. They were tried and tortured for years to find out where the real treasure were. Apparently, the treasure of the Knights Templar was secreted out of Europe or out of France uh, in advance, even despite all the secrecy by Philip, they, they apparently, they never did find the treasure. It remains a mystery. Now, attempts to wipe out the Knights Templar outside of France was less successful. In fact, uh, Philippe's own son-in-law was Edward II of England, and he was very half-hearted in his pursuit of the Templars. Scotland was at war with England at that time, and so the order was never even officially dissolved in Scotland, maintained itself in Scotland for another 400 years. In Germany and Spain, they found refuge in other orders. They changed their name to the Teutonic Knights and some other things. In Portugal, they became the Knights of Christ. They functioned until the 16th century devoting themselves primarily to maritime activity. Most scholars who study this suspect that the, the treasures were secreted by ships somewhere and never found. Vasco da Gama, Columbus's father-in-law, were all tangled up in this stuff. So there's so many trails here, we could spend all night on this issue easily. In 1522, the Templars' Prussian progeny, the Teutonic Knights, repudiated their allegiance to Rome, because up to them, even though they were a secret order, they professed an allegiance to the Vatican. That's finally what undoes them because they are discovered to be Satan worshippers. And that's, what, uh, that's the whole background behind that. But, but anyway, the, in 1522, the Teutonic Knights repudiated their allegiance to Rome and threw their support behind another upstart rebel by the name of Martin Luther. So it's interesting to see how these things go. There are scholars that believe that the wealth of the Knights Templars that was never recovered was the starting capital of the great banking houses in Europe. But that's conjectural. But there's a lot of books written on that sort of stuff. Now anyway, in March of 1314, this is seven years after the original arrest of the Knights Templar, their last leader, Jacques de Molay, he was the Grand Master of the Knights Templar, it said he was crucified in a bizarre parody of the crucifixion of Jesus, and it's his image that materialized on the cloth that once clothed him. Now, we brought you up to about the 18th century where various secret societies derive from all of this. Behind all these, it seems that the master society, even prior to the Knights Templar, is an organization that was originally called the, the, the Order of Zion, or the Priory. Of, in, in 1188, it was changed to the Priory of Zion. And the Knights Templar was a front group really run by the Order of Zion. Also in 1188 is when a derivative spinoff called the Rosicrucians also develops. Now this gets all interwoven with another heresy that uh, I don't think a Bible, someone that has any Bible background has any trouble with because it's so absurd. But there's a heresy that um, Jesus didn't really die and that he uh, married Mary Magdalene and had children and that becomes the Merovingian dynasty and in the 5th century it shows up. That's obviously a heresy, but what is interesting that many scholars overlook is you apparently can build a family tree from Antiochus Epiphanes, the one that desecrated the temple in the second century before Christ, that Titus Vespasian, who destroys the Jerusalem in 70 AD, is a descendant of Antiochus Epiphanes. And that bloodline does connect to the bloodlines in Europe. And so there are scholars that suspect that the, uh, from Daniel 11 and some other studies, 
that the Antichrist will be of that bloodline. It doesn't help us much today because that bloodline is very diverse. Almost every major family in Europe can trace its lineage back down that channel, interestingly enough. We're not going to get into that here, but we are going to deal with that explicitly in a, uh, a briefing package called Behold a White Horse. We're doing the, the, the Five Horsemen of the Apocalypse. And I've told you about that story. You know, everybody calls the ministry and says, doesn't Chuck know there's only four? You know, the four horsemen of Revelation 6. No, there's a fifth one. That's the one in Revelation 19. So we're going to include all five. But anyway, we're going, uh, you know, four, three, two, one. We did, we're going to climax with the uh, next to the last will be the first horse, the, the white horse of Revelation 6. And we will deal with all of this in more substance at that time. But it will be interesting to you to know that from the 18th century on, there were all kinds of societies that derive from these apparent ancestral societies, secret societies, all of them, mystical, occultic. Among them was a group formed by Adam Weishaupt known as the Illuminati on May 1st of 1776. They were subsequently merged into the Masons, the Freemasonry. Freemasonry tries to attribute, whether it's real or not, as scholars argue about, they try to attribute their origins to the Knights Templar and maybe earlier. The guardians of these secrets are, have tried to hide them from the world and from their own membership. If there's a Mason here, I apologize if I'm offensive, but the truth of the matter is there are many good, devout, wholesome people that happen to be caught up in the Masonic order. It's viewed as a charity, service group, does philanthropy. But as you progress through the 33 degrees in the Scottish Rite of Masonry, to use it as as the nominal model here, there's two different, New York and the Scottish Rite. But the point is, it turns out that you take oaths at each level, and those oaths are terrifying. And Mason will tell you, well, no one takes them seriously, but they're blood oaths, and they're scary. The whole thing, the truth of the matter is, if you, if you get into this, and I don't want to take the time here, you, well, the whole Mason, the Freemasonry, I, should, I better deal with this a little bit. The Freemasons are a widely held misconception, even among its own members. And uh, incidentally, the two authors that wrote the, write about the so-called second Messiah, the Jacques de Malay, they're only at the third level of Masonry. So they themselves are probably in for, as much research as they've done on the history of Masonry, they're in for some surprises, I believe. But they're presumed to be a charitable organization. Indeed, they do many good things. But their inner mysteries are unknown until you ascend to the higher levels. In fact, I have correspondence from some of the experts that if they know you're a Christian, that bottles you, a real Christian, that bottles you. To, you can't progress beyond certain levels, and that's not disclosed to the general membership. But the truth of the matter is there are a lot of books around, a lot of authorities that will point out to you that ultimately the Masonic order is a Luciferian cult, a dark occult. And this is, topic is too charged, emotionally charged, to get into detail here, but our notes will have uh, uh, a reading list for those that want to do, any, anybody that's involved in this, uh, to do some homework. John Ankerberg and John Weldon have done an excellent little book on that, and there's a number of other. Charles Finney, the famous evangelist, has done an extensive book on the character claims and practical works of Freemasonry, and Ralph Epperson and others have done, I, I won't, there's a whole list that will be associated with the tape of where you can start if you want to do some homework in this area. But the real reason I get into all of this isn't because of that. Accompanied with this is a lot of scholastic materials that uh, suggest that Jesus really led just an entirely Jewish sect, and he was succeeded not by Peter but by his brother James, the first bishop of Jerusalem. The role of James uh, was appeared to be a threat to the Roman Catholic Church. It's claimed by them. And they, of course, controlled history and, re- and removed information from the records about James. In 1996, Pope John Paul II issued a statement declaring that Jesus was Mary's only child and therefore not his br- that James was not his brother at all. 
you know, that's, and that's scholastically indefendable, but I mean, you have to understand why the church starts putting up those barriers. The advocates here, adversaries, would put Paul in opposition to James as a late-coming intruder. After James is martyred in 62 AD, the first cousin of Jesus, uh, Simeon, the son of Cleopas, became the new leader of the church in Jerusalem. He was later executed by the Romans as a pretender to the throne of David. The flavor they try to paint is that they're trying to recreate the Davidic dynasty. Jesus' brother, and that's the story they try to paint. Now, these heresies ascribe Christianity as we know it to Paul in contrast to James, and they prey upon the ignorant who fail to understand the integrity of the Word of God. There are some contemporary so-called Christian scholars, Robert Eisman and others, that portray James as a central figure among the revolutionary parties in Jerusalem from 40 A.D. to the AD, early 60s, when James was killed by the same pro-Roman priestly establishment that killed Jesus. And throughout his lifetime, James, like Jesus, is presented as a, preaching a law-oriented apocalyptic nationalism that contrasted sharply with the teachings of Paul. It was the death of James that triggered the uprising against Rome that led to the destruction of 780. That's the party line they try to sell. And if someone hasn't done their homework, this is just ripped through of misstatements of fact. But unless you've done your homework, you wouldn't recognize that. People that will stumble into this can get inoculated against the true gospel of the New Testament by imagining these kinds of things. So this pseudo-scholastic revisionism can deal severe death blows to a, a, uh, someone who doesn't have the depth of background or, or grounding here. And what fascinates me about this is your protection of this is to discover for yourself the integrity of the total Bible. Not just the book of James. It has integrity too, but I mean in terms of the total. When you discover that these 66 books penned by 40 different guys over thousands of years are designed as an integral whole, and I don't mean just the themes, I mean the the place names, the structure of the text. In fact, one more example, and then we'll uh, tie it off here. There were four Jameses that are mentioned in the New Testament. James, the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, the beloved disciple, right? James and John, sons of Zebedee, you know all about that. And they they were, both James and John were insiders. That James was slain, slain by Herod right after Pentecost. James, the son of Alphaeus, the brother of Judas, not Iscariot, the other Judas. Uh, he's only in lists, and, he, and he's, he's sometimes called James the Younger or James the Lesser. The third James is James, the father of Judas. Again, not Iscariot, a different Judas. Uh, he's identified as one of the twelve in Luke six sixteen. He's probably the Thaddeus of Matthew ten three and Mark three eighteen. And then, of course, the fourth James, the brother of our Lord. Now, you understand the brother of our Lord Jesus Christ did not believe in Jesus' deity until after the resurrection. Okay. John 7, 5, he, then the Lord first appears after his resurrection, uh, apparently, to James. 1 Corinthians 5, uh, 15, 7, Galatians 1, 19. Now, he, of course, rises to prominence in the Jerusalem church. Those going to Jerusalem from other churches founded by Paul are said to have come from James. In other words, to have come from the Jerusalem church was to have come from James. He was the leader of the church. But it's interesting that in Acts 15, 24, he had already disavowed allowing them to use his name as an endorsement to the legal teachings. He didn't want to take, he didn't, he deliberately avoided being authoritative in that sense in Acts 15.24. Now, one of the things that really fascinates me, and I can't take this topic without sharing this with you, and that's the equidistant letter sequences. Now, you probably know about all the controversies having to do with these Bible codes, and there are many kinds of Bible codes. Where, in fact, we're, as you know, we're publishing a book called Cosmic Codes, Hidden uh, Messages from the Edge of Eternity. But the point of it is, these codes 
There are many different kinds in the Bible, and the equidistant letter sequences are not the most important. And I could spend a lot of time talking about the others, but let's just focus on the equidistant letter sequences. There's a lot of that about the Torah codes, but I want to shift to the book of Isaiah. Uh, Rabbi Yaakov Ramsel in San Antonio uh, is the guy that has made some fascinating discoveries, not in the Torah codes that we saw about, in Isaiah. If these equidistant letter sequences, all it means, all that means is that take words at every tenth letter, every fifth letter, what do they, they, they spell meaningful things. There are codes we discover all through the scripture. Some of these, some people figure are just accidental or coincidental. Others, people argue, are too unique to be there by accident. Isaiah 53 is considered the peak of the Old Testament. Some people call it the Holy of Holies of the Old Testament. Isaiah 53 is an incredible passage. But the occurrence of equidistant letter codes in in Isaiah 53 is very striking. The label Nazarene, which is the death of Jesus, of course, shows up in there. Um, The word Galilee appears twice. And that in itself isn't a big thing except in combinations. Every time something else appears nearby, it makes the, the, the likelihood that it was accidental less likely. The time of the Passover, the location of Mount Moriah, the names of Herod and Caesar make their appearance. Both the names of Annas and Caiaphas, the high priests, are there. Annas was the former high priest, the uncle of Caiaphas. Both of them, of course, figure prominently in three of the six trials that Jesus went through that night after his arrest in Gethsemane. Now, what's startling is, in Isaiah 53, within 15 verses, there are 40 names encoded. Forty names. Pilate, Caesar, uh, Caiaphas, Annas, and all the disciples that were at the foot of the cross. The specific names, each and of themselves, are not that you can statistically say, well, gee, that, that could have happened by itself, but not altogether. The name of Peter appears in Isaiah 53, verse 3, beginning at the second letter of the fifth word, counting every 19th letter from right to left. There are over 300 occurrences of the name in Isaiah, so this incidence doesn't seem that significant in and of itself. But then you find the name of John also appears there every 28th letter. And on it goes. The name of Andrew. And the uh, name of Philip. The name of Thomas. I won't go through all the numbers. That you get, they'll all be in the notes if you want to chase. And you can chase this down yourself if you want. Here's the point I'm leading up to. It's interesting that the name James appears twice encrypted. It's uh, Jacobus. It's uh, Yaakov uh, in the Hebrew. It appears twice hidden behind the text. It was a common name of that period. What makes this provocative, there were two Jameses at the foot of the cross. Not three, not four, two. You follow me? And one of them was the son of Zebedee, the brother of John, with whom you know we went through all that. And uh, the other was the son of Alphaeus, one of the twelve apostles, James the Younger. Now, what's interesting is there isn't a third James. Why? He was not a believer at that time. He, that was the Lord's brother. He becomes a believer later. He's mentioned with his brothers, Joseph and Simon and Judas. Those are names of, of Christ's brothers. Before his resurrection, they're listed in the Gospels. By the way, there are three Marys. Also a relatively common name in the period. Uh, I won't go through all the details, but Grant Jeffrey points out that Isaiah 53.11, starting with the fifth letter of the ninth word, counting every twentieth letter from left to right, spells uh, in Hebrew, exceeding high Yeshua is my strong name. The yot there in that uh, word is the same letter that encodes John and Mary together. Remember where Jesus on the cross commits his mother to the care of John. How interesting, how intimate, how 
how touching that is. And the, the word Mashiach, the Messiah, is in there, and on it goes, and I won't go through all this. There's something interesting. There is a word that occurs 50 times, accidentally, presumably, in the book of Isaiah, that does not appear in Isaiah 53. The name of Judas. Now, what makes that strange is the name Judas, by the frequency of the letters of it, is that it should occur statistically frequently, and it does. It intrinsically happens in Hebrew. It occurs apparently 50 times in Isaiah. But it's interesting, it's, it's an argument by omission. It is conspicuous in its absence within that region of the text. And Matthias, by the way, the one that replaced Judas, does appear. From Acts 1, if you remember all of that. Well, why did I get into all this? First of all, if you haven't, somewhere along, if you're going to be a serious student of the scripture and its historical background, you'll run into these bizarre contrivances that try to argue that James and Paul were adversaries. All you need to do is read the New Testament and you'll find out hardly they were both pulling together in Acts 15 and elsewhere, if you watch that closely. No, uh, these, these heresies are of a people who try to manifest what I call pseudo-scholarship and twist and distort the scripture. Now, what bothers me about it, when I encountered some of this, I do some reading of this background for other reasons, to fill in some, get some understanding of these viewpoints. I was so startled with the degree to which these heresies about James can totally derail a new Christian. You start hearing some of this, and you hear their nice-sounding arguments, and you start buying into that, and it starts to shred the Scripture. One of the things that really bothers me is that there are these guys that start, find, they find ways to cause you to cast doubts about the Word of God. And you'll never match them with degrees or erudition having to do with the language, background, or exegesis. No, you don't need to do that. All you need to do is discover for yourself, not because I tell you, discover the integrity of the Word itself. It is bulletproof. These wise guys can't shred the Scripture. Uh, it is bulletproof. But it gets its strength by its integrity. From Genesis chapter 1, verse 1 to Revelation 22, it's tight. It's a network. Every number, every place name, every detail is there by supernatural engineering. You start pulling one of those pieces out of the place and it starts to fall apart like a knit dress. Just pulling one thread, it all unravels, right? And so be careful. And the same thing happens with uh, so-called textual criticism. Some scholar who's trying to do a thesis for his PhD says, well, gee, Isaiah didn't really write Isaiah. There were two Isaiahs. That's interesting. John didn't know that because he makes it very, the Holy Spirit makes it very clear the same Isaiah wrote the whole book. And that's not a, 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 a seminary thesis. That's in John chapter 12, verses 39 through 40. Makes it clear if you look at it closely. Every heresy that you'll encounter, the Holy Spirit has anticipated in the Word of God. And this fiction that somehow James and Paul had different gospels and that James died off and Paul took advantage and that Christianity is built as a Pauline gospel is nonsense. The gospel that you and I embrace has its roots in Genesis and is reamplified in every chapter on every page throughout the book. The miracle of the book of Genesis is not the creation. It's that Jesus Christ is on every page and his fulfillment of the law of the Torah on your behalf and mine, is there on every page. And Paul hammers that. These people who write these weird books that sound good and they make the authors some wealth 
are out of the pit of hell. They betray an absolute ignorance on the part of the writer of any knowledge of the author of this book. I hope this hasn't been a waste of time tonight. I want you not to be caught by surprise when these weird ideas hit you from left, come out of left field. Because we know in whom we have believed and that he is able to keep that which we've committed unto him against that day. And I've run a little over. Let's uh, stand for a closing word of prayer. Let's bow our hearts. Father, we praise you for your word. We thank you, Father, that you've gone to such extremes to reveal yourself to us. And Father, we know that you've not given us the spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. We pray, Father, that you would just send your Holy Spirit to instruct each of us. Help each of us to discover directly, firsthand, the the integrity of your word. Shield us, Father. Help us build this shield of faith that will quench the fiery darts of the wicked one. We pray, Father, that you would just shield us, protect us, enlighten us, illuminate that path before us that we might discover what you would have of each of us in these days that remain. We pray, Father, that you would just help each of us to continue to grow in grace and in the knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ that we each might be more responsive to what you would have of us these days. We pray, Father, that you'd make us discerning, that we might be effective witnesses of the truth that you've entrusted to us. Help us, Father, to bear fruit for you as we commit ourselves this night into your hands in the name of Yeshua, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. You've been listening to 6640, the ministry outreach of Koinonia House and Koinonia Institute. Today's Bible teacher was Chuck Missler, teaching through the book of James. Download the new K-House TV app to access an ever-growing collection of free resources. Visit the Apple or Android app store, or search K-House TV on your Roku streaming device. Thank you for listening to 6640 and for your continued prayerful support of this ministry. Until next time, when we begin a new series, may God bless you with the knowledge of His Son, Jesus Christ, as you study His Word.